welcome back to My Life Plus 25. For those of you who don't know, my name is Mario Chavez, and for the last 17 years, I have been wrongfully convicted and incarcerated for a crime that I did commit. And, you know, a lot of you have been following me on this plat platform, you've been following me on Substack, and I really appreciate you. Uh, this podcast is made possible by the contributions of many people and the help of many who believe in me, believe in the cause, believe in the fact that we shouldn't have wrongful convictions, and I appreciate every single one of you. And listen, everyone, I've been receiving some great encouragement during the last few weeks, ever since the New Mexico Supreme Court closed the door on my freedom with its denial of my final motion for reconsideration filed by my attorney, uh, Jason Bowles. Uh, we also just did a major first interview with uh, Bruce Barquette and Aida Lessingring on Crime and Justice Radio, where we talked about prison conditions and my overall claim for innocence. And I was really excited to do this interview, and I think it went really, really well. And I'm eager to do more interviews on more platforms as soon as opportunities present themselves. Uh, today, uh, on, on My Life Plus 20, 25, the topic is, based on the messages and comments that I've received from so many of, of you, is where are we right now in this fight for exoneration, given the recent denial from the New Mexico Supreme Court. And some of you have even asked me directly uh, whether the fight ends here. If not here, what's next? So to answer your first question, the fight just does not end here, right? Listen, this denial, uh, just like every denial, especially when you know what the law is, but it's more convenient for a court to ignore it than address it, denials hurt. And I I won't try to, sh to sugarcoat it for you or even for myself, but it's important to know that the, de the denial was expected. I mean, Jason Bowles and I, we didn't really expect the highest court in New Mexico to respond to our claims. After all, it is common for states to be hostile to federal and constitutional law. I mean, states have always harbored this sort of twisted logic that they should be able to, I don't know, invent their own laws as they go along. And they aim to uphold their own convictions for as long as humanly possible, despite blatant violations to constitutional law or due process. I mean, you would think or at least hope that a judge, when they can see an obvious constitutional violation on the surface of the record, in my instance, a Sixth Amendment right to confrontation was denied me, at the very least, they would order a hearing to see if what appears on the surface is actually true. But that is rarely the reality that we see in our criminal justice system. Because here's the problem. If they look too closely, it becomes more difficult to justify their denials. So instead, they just deny motions and appeals with no explanations, probably figuring, well, let them take it to the federal court. The justification is likely something like, he's crying about his constitutional rights, let the federal court deal with it if they want to. Because the state courts understand that there is absolutely no consequence for them doing this. And I've said this numerous times and I'll say it again because I think most people don't realize that most courts and judges, they aren't interested in doing the right thing or justice or adhering to the law. More than anything else, they just want to go about their lives and not make waves. And let me tell you something, overturning a wrongful conviction after 17 years that, just does, that doesn't just make waves, it makes tsunami waves for them. And there's no good publicity that comes out of that for them because then people start talking about 
public reforms and criminal justice reforms and oversight on judges and prosecutors. And since most judges are ex-prosecutors, they have to cover their bases. Besides, if you think about it, there's no downside to this type of behavior for them. I mean, of course, some people have have told me there's questions of ethics and morality, but those aren't the things that pay their mortgages or fund their retirements or their pensions or send their children to college. State judges typically want to stay on the bench as long as humanly possible, and that doesn't happen when they make waves and put the state in a position to have to compensate someone with potentially millions of dollars for having wrongfully taken decades of their life away. I mean, and that's the basic nut of where I find myself right now. After 17 years, no New Mexican court has ever responded to these constitutional claims. And just as a, as a reminder of what I'm talking about is that my conviction is based on a single accusation made by the first suspect that the police had in custody. And the law says that I have a right to confront my accuser. But I, that right was never given to me. The jury got to see all the accusations, and I never got a, a chance to defend myself by putting his statements through the crucible of cross-examination, which is exactly what the law says. In all actuality, this claim should have been addressed years and years ago on my direct appeal. It wasn't. On my first habeas petition, despite numerous letters from me to the various attorneys appointed to represent me, making them aware of both my innocence and my violated constitutional rights, these tantamount claims weren't made until my closing arguments, and even then they were ignored by the state district court, the same court that issued my illegal conviction. So I filed another habeas myself called Pro Se, since it was apparent that the court-appointed attorneys weren't interested in likewise making waves for themselves or their careers. Look, listen to what I was told. Many court-appointed attorneys told me this. Mr. Chavez, New Mexico is a small legal community, and I don't want any problems. Translation? Mr. Chavez, I know what the law says. I know that your rights were violated, but I'm not going to fight for you because to do so would expose me and my career to negative consequences within the New Mexico legal community. And it was at this point that I began to realize that this fight for my life was not one that I could win on my own. I needed a lawyer, and that lawyer was going to have to need – was going to need to be brave enough and successful enough in his or her career that negative blowback from the New Mexico legal community wasn't going to be a top concern. And I remember that my mother and I sent dozens and dozens of messages to any and every attorney of merit, both in and outside of the state of New Mexico. And we got responses about conflicts of interest. A few others talked to me, and they wanted these absurd amounts of money knowing that I've been unemployed for, for, for 17 years. And then I got an email from Jason Bowles, unexpected. He said, Mario, let's talk. No bullshit. If you're innocent, I will help you. We did talk. No bullshit. And in the last year, this man has done more for me as an attorney and a human being than all my previous attorneys combined. And I don't make this statement lightly. You know, recently, in the last few days, I received a very encouraging email from Christine Bunch. And some of you may know who she is. She was wrongfully convicted for the death of her infant son, wrongfully incarcerated for 17 years, and then rescued by the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law. And she told me in her message, she says, don't lose hope. 
and that she's praying for me. And her advice to me was was this, to find an organization who was willing to fight for me outside of the state of New Mexico. And I don't know her personally, but her advice is gold to me because she's been in our, our situation. She knows the challenges that, that, that we face, obviously. And just recently, when we did this interview with uh, Bruce Barquet and Aida Lessingring, the recommendation was the same. Aida referred us to Marty Tankless, likewise another exoneree who is actually now a lawyer who fights to exonerate the wrongfully convicted like himself, like myself. Check out his site. It's called makinganexoneree.com. So Jason and I have both reached out to Marty, and we're optimistic. I mean, hopefully Bruce and Aida will likewise stay involved, and I'm confident that we're going to find support that we need. Because just like I was convinced that I needed a lawyer, I'm likewise starting to see how important it is to have an entire village behind us. And here's why. The United States habeas process is actually designed to deny relief to state petitioners like myself. I know that seems strange, but that's the truth. And for those of you who don't know what habeas corpus is, it, it's a challenge to the legality of a person's imprisonment. It's saying to the courts, look, what you did to me was illegal, unconstitutional, and I want you to let me go. It's a way for us to say what you did is illegal, like I said. And initially in this country, right, habeas corpus wasn't something that afforded to state prisoners. If you were convicted you know, in the early 1800s of a crime that wasn't adhering to the Constitution, you're stuck. There was no relief. But in 1867, they passed the, Horbus, the Habeas Corpus Act, and that, that did change something. And as I mentioned before, because states have always been hostile to federal law, it wasn't uncom- uncommon for federal courts to overturn a state conviction or even offer the defendant a new trial in federal court. But states didn't like that their convictions were being overturned because they were obviously unconstitutional. And together with other state representatives in Congress, they passed a garbage piece of legislation in 1996 called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, known as AEDPA. Of course, the name of this act of legislation is, is misleading. And the reason I say that is because it's hard to see over the last 25 years how this Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act has done anything whatsoever to make the death penalty more effective or prevent terrorist attacks. Instead, what it did do was to create a series of hurdles and hoops that a petitioner has to jump through to find relief for an unconstitutional conviction. I think we all need to look at at an example of what I'm talking about here. This act of Congress makes the federal courts give deference the decisions of the state courts, even when those decisions are illegal, right? The law is filled with arbitrary terms like unreasonable, right? It's not enough, according to this law, that the state decision or ruling be illegal. It must also be unreasonable. Now, you would think that if it's illegal, it's also unreasonable, but apparently that's not the case. It's made a distinction that if something can be illegal but not be unreasonable, and this is the kind of nonsense le- le- legislation that keeps people in prison unnecessarily. And the reality of this is this. It is rare for a prisoner, someone like myself, with a legitimate constitutional claim to successfully maneuver around all the AEDPA obstacles to have their claims just heard, just listened to. I've even heard some legal scholars say that thanks to the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, 
that federal habeas relief is now a pipe dream, quote, which when you look at the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the success rate for a non-capital habeas petitioner like myself is the paltry one-third of 1%. One-third of 1%. There are now 25,000 federal habeas petitions filed every year by state petitioners like me. And according to the statistic, only about 70, maybe 73 of us will actually find any kind of relief out of 25,000. And the judges in the courts, they effectively wash their hands of the situation. Because they always say, well, you know, all we're doing is following the law that your elective representatives in Congress passed. So as I said, the door to relief in the state of New Mexico is at the moment close to us. What we have is we have a pending pro se federal petition, which we will now amend and refile in the federal court. And despite the statistics, we're going to win. But you know what? There's something really interesting that I uh, just read about in an article in the Columbia Law Review. It was published in 2019. It's by an A. Pavond Adu. It's called Direct Collateral Review. And it turns out that there is a less traveled road to relief that is now open to someone like myself. That would essentially give me a detour around all the habeas corpus hurdles and give me the equivalent of a direct review on my constitutional issue, something that actually I've never had. And this review would be with SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. And I know that a lot of you are probably listening to me say this, and you're probably thinking another pipe dream, right? Because how many cases does SCOTUS hear every year? Less than 10? But according to this Columbia Law Review, SCOTUS has what's called a shadow docket. And there are opinions in there referring to petitioners, or actually referring petitioners, to take the DCR, the Direct Collateral Review Road, to relief. And the shadow docket, which is something that I'm just learning about, apparently contains orders, reversals, and other opinions that never see the daylight. And if the courts are unwilling to address my legitimate claims in broad daylight, perhaps the shadow docket is where I need to be. But this leads us to another set of challenges. Fights for exoneration require resources and funding. So we're hopeful that we can make this happen because if we can, we will receive a review unhindered by the garbage legislation that is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, something that I should have received as a right of law but haven't. And the reason is, is because under the habeas statutes, the court, right, when it looks at a habeas petition, gets its power through 28 U.S.C. 2254, right? But under a direct collateral review, it comes through 28 U.S.C. 1257A. The same as a direct appeal taken to the Supreme Court for a state court judgment. And I know that to a lot of you, this might just sound like a bunch of numbers or legal jargon. But this distinction is extremely important because it means that a DCR is outside the realm of habeas corpus and all its stupid restrictions. So we need to shoot for this. So that's where we are right now. We're trying to get a DCR before SCOTUS and amend our habeas petition to be denied by the federal district court in New Mexico so that we can potentially get to the United States Court of Appeals in the 10th Circuit. Now, there's another issue that I want to address because I've received some messages from from some of my followers, and I think it's important to touch on here. It's re- it relates to my claim of innocence. Some of you have asked me for the basis of how I substantiate this claim, and I think it's an important and very fair question. How do I substantiate my claim of innocence? It's important because if you're someone with the ability to potentially help me, you want to know that what you're getting behind is real. I get that, and I would be asking the same exact question. 
But here's the thing. The unfortunate truth is that there is no sure way for me to convince you of my innocence. And the fact that there's no cameras, no DNA or fingerprints. As far as I know, there were three people in the house. Myself, Eloy Montano, and the victim. And in the first five episodes of this podcast, I did my very best to explain what happened that day. And if after listening to all of those things, you aren't convinced, then it's highly unlikely that there's anything else that I could possibly say to convince you. And if you think that I showed up at a house to kill someone and that I had never met, and that before doing so, I decided to greet the neighbors and take pictures and make myself as known as possible, and then go inside and kill someone, and then, let's see, take the victim's wallet and send it to Dennis Moline, the man who had been openly threatening my life, both, both publicly and in emails. And then when the police go to him and ask him about it, you know, he doesn't say that I sent it to him. You know what he says? Oh, I don't know how the wallet gets 400 miles away to me. And the police just accept that. If you believe any of that, then there's obviously nothing that I could say that would convince you of anything. The truth is I never had a chance to build a defense so as to prove my innocence. That I can prove with the facts. I don't know what my trial attorney did with the money he was given for investigative purposes, but what I can prove to you is that he could only document $50 that he invested into my investigative efforts for my defense. Listen, you don't need to be a trial expert or a legal expert to know that a defense built on $50 of investigation is not a defense. That's a firing squad. It's an execution. You've all heard me talk about the digital alibi, the fact that I couldn't have made the payphone call that lured the realtor to his death. You've heard me talk about the size 9 bloody footprint that matches Eloy's footprint, but not my footprint. That's a size 12. You've heard me talk about the open threats on my life that I was under when I came into the state of New Mexico. You've heard me talk about why I stayed at Eloy's side for two days trying to convince him to turn himself in instead of going to the police myself alone. You've heard me talk about why I risked myself to save the neighbor's lives, right? Mr. Clark and his young daughter from being killed by Eloy. You've heard me talk about Eloy's contradictory statements to the police, the countless lies. You've heard me talk about how the police refused to talk to the workers that were on the property that, that morning or any other witness that could take them down a different road of investigation. You've heard me talk about why I was even involved with the murder weapon to, be, to begin with. And every bit of what I've talked about should have been investigated and presented to the jury, but it wasn't. Because as the trial and records show, no investigation was ever done on my behalf. Everything that I've shared with you, to the very best of my ability, are scraps that I've desperately tried to collect over the years. I have received almost no help, with the exception of the last year when Jason Bowles got involved. The court has even denied me copies of my own trial transcripts. So if you're trying to make a decision as to whether or not I'm really innocent, you're going to have to make a judgment call. I'm telling you that I'm innocent, but I also know that maybe that's not good enough for you. So let me also tell you this. What I can prove is that I've never been given a fair trial. And if justice means anything to you, then help me for that reason. Because everyone should have a fair trial, an opportunity to, to prove his innocence. I've never been given that chance. My trial lawyer apparently determined that his financial needs were more important than my investigative ones. And when the judge decided to not even uphold my constitutional right to confrontation, right, to confront my only accuser and put his accusation to the crucible of cross-examination, 
what chance did I really stand with the jury? Had an actual investigation been done, it's unlikely that I would even have stood trial. Because another thing that I most certainly can prove is that the police selectively ignored any and all lines of investigation that didn't support their theory of the case. Look, I've always known that the self-professed innocence isn't proof of anything. I know this. Just like my conviction wasn't substantiated by actual proof, it was circumstantial. And in the eyes of some, so are my claims to innocence. The difference, however, lies in the constitutional fact that I have never had a fair trial. Whether we're talking about circumstantial guilt or circumstantial innocence, the determining factor absolutely has to be a fair trial. And that is something that I have not had. But look, we're, we are very hopeful that with the new investigative efforts that we're undertaking that we're going to be able to uncover new evidence. We're confident that this new evidence exists, and I won't talk about it here. I won't go into it now, but it exists, and it's going to be a game changer. And this is why I'm talking out. This is why I'm talking to all of you, because this needs to be addressed. This isn't happening just to me. It's happening to thousands every year in this country. And most of them don't have the voice or the pedestal to stand on or the help that I have. And we need more. So thank you. Remember, you can always send me your questions to Mario at mylifeplus25.com. You can follow me at Twitter at lifeplus25. Thank you for your ongoing support and your encouragement. It means the world to me. Thank you.